Today we fly the friendly skies and find out that falling to your death doesn't always mean dying. And then we explore a conspiracy theory that actually, for the first time, makes me afraid of gray aliens. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Mashkwa Romaloth episode. Hug Poop, Rabbit Wah, Havel, Jason Carpenter, Host, Huglu, Cook, Javam. That's Klingon. Or welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. Today is a good day to die. I hope it's a good day to die for you as well. Still on my Star Trek binge. That's all I'm going to talk about Star Trek today. We actually got a lot of it. I'll be talking about it forever. We got a lot of stuff to cover though today. We got some really good stories. And. Let's go ahead and start with the first one. Let's just jump right into it. I came across a story in this, and I thought, I wonder if I can find four more and make it a top five list. And I was, because it happens surprisingly a lot. Now, we're going up into the air. Now, the Carpenter Copter cannot reach the altitudes that we want to get to, because we got to go high. We got to go way high up. So, let's hop on board our newest air vehicle, the Jason Jet is still being constructed. We're going to hop on the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. Now, let's get inside. Now, I got to turn it on, and then we'll fly up. So, now I know the machine is a little loud, and I get that. It's just going to be a short while. I'm sorry. It's, it's We bought it from, it's from a World War II German blimp factory. So, okay, there we go. Sorry. Sometimes it starts off a little loud, and we just have to... We'll have to bear with it. Dead Rabbit Dirigible is... But it's roomy, and it's going to get us as high as we need to be. That's not a pot joke. We actually have to go up in elevation. We are going to start off. And because of all my international listeners, because there's so many of you, I went through the task of adding kilometers in this section. So there you go. See? I'm not a total ethnocentric dude. I'll, I'll throw kilometers in there every once in a while. Not centimeters, though. Those are lame. We're going up two miles, which equals three kilometers. And we're in the year 1971. So we're in the Dead Rabbit Dirigible, just kind of floating there. We see a passenger plane flying towards us. Now, I should have warned you to wear your rain jackets because huge lightning storm. I didn't even know this was possible. Not lightning storms. I knew those were possible, but huge lightning storm. Yes, this segment will have a lot of sound effects. And lightning struck this plane so hard, according to the Wikipedia article, the plane disintegrated. I didn't know that was possible. I thought planes were built to take lightning strikes. But anyways, imagine it's like just slowly got vaporized. Disintegrate is a very specific term. But anyway, so apparently this plane disintegrated. And in that plane, wearing her seatbelt like a good girl, like you should, is Julianne Kopecki. The plane, imagine you're sitting in a plane. You're scared because it's kind of jostling. You have a bit of turbulence. There's lightning strikes. All of a sudden... Straight up like 1980s special effects lightning hits your plane, goes all over, and the plane just falls apart around you. You're strapped to your seat. Now she fell, this teenage girl fell two miles to the earth. Uh, She flies by the blimp. We probably could have helped her, but you know. I don't know if she yelled the whole way. She probably passed out at some point. Smashes into the ground and survives. But... She's in the Amazon rainforest. So she has a huge gash in her arm, broken collarbone. 
She's like, okay, my dad taught me that if you find a river or a stream, follow it downstream because there's a chance, a better chance that you'll find a civilization. It's not 100%. So she's walking along through the Amazon jungle along the stream. All she brought with her was some candy. I mean, you pretty much have what you had in your pockets if you flew out of a plane. Unless, like, luggage was falling periodically and you, like, open it up and you're like, oh, awesome, there's a cheeseburger in here. For 11 days, she trudged through the Amazon until she found a boat. And you think, oh, then she took the boat to town. Her first instinct was this. Her dad also taught her, if you ever have like a wound, like a deep wound, pour gasoline on it. And it'll like help disinfect it. And that was her first instinct because her arm was super just like gross at this point. She was getting bit by all these bugs. She was getting super infected. She gets gasoline. There's like a little boat shed by. She pours it on her arm. And by her count, and I, I would lose count after maybe the first 10. By her count, 30 Five maggots squirmed out of her arm. Now, again, was she just looking at it the whole time and she's like, 28? 29? Like, really? She counted 35? But anyways, I believe her. 35 maggots came out of her arm and she's like, oh, it feels much more flexible. Lumberjacks who the boat belonged to showed up and they're like, oh my God, you're totally gross. Let's take you to the town. And she survived. Now, and somehow we saw all of that from our dirigible, and we were up there for 11 days. We could have at least thrown her down like a ham sandwich or something like that. Now we're going to World War II, and it should not shock you that most of these stories take place in World War II. World War II. Nicholas Alkmade. So we gotta actually take the blimp up for this one. That person was two miles. We're actually going up. We're going up to 3.4 miles now. So the blimp rises silently this time. Goes up a little bit higher. And we're back in World War II. Now, luckily, we're invisible. I'm just adding that in. Otherwise, we'd be toast. Because we're in the middle of a raging battle between the Nazis and the Allies. And so Nicholas is in a bomber. A U.S. bomber. And then you got the Nazi planes. Oh no, Captain, Captain, we got it all shot up. The the, the the plane that I forgot. Oh, the bomber, the bomber. That's what I meant to say. The bomber. Bullets are just shredding this bomber to pieces. Plane catches on fire. Now, this guy, Nicholas, is like, oh no. So Nicholas is like, I'm not going to burn to death. He gets, so they have their parachutes on. So they're in the plane. Bullets are flying through, places on fire. And he's like, uh-oh, I better get out of here. I mean, that's probably an understatement. And then he realizes that the parachute he's wearing is also on fire. So he's like, uh, that's not good. So he goes, I still rather would die on impact than burn to death. So he jumps out of an airplane 3.4 miles up in the air, which is 5.4 kilometers. Uh, And he's just falling. Hits a bunch of pine trees. And then into a soft pile of snow. Sprained his leg. That was it. He woke up when he hits the ground. He's like, oh. What happened to, what happened to my, I don't know why he has an accent all of a sudden, but what happened to me ankle? Gestapo shows up, you know, the people you don't want to find you after a plane crash. And they start questioning him. And he's like, yeah, I just fell out of that plane. And they're like, that's impossible. You only have a sprained leg. You say you fell 5.4 kilometers. And he's like, well, 3.4 miles in regular measurement. But yeah, yeah, I fell. They start questioning him. They find the wreckage of his plane. They believe him. The Gestapo... I I don't know what I would do with this. The Gestapo gave him a certificate proving that that he fell out of the plane and survived. What would you do with a certificate from the Gestapo? Like, you don't really want to hang it up on your wall, but you also don't want to, like, throw it away because it proves that you survived this plane crash. 
But I mean, how do you? Do you I mean, that's that's a hard thing when the, he's telling his kids that story. And yeah, and then these guys showed up, and they're they were pretty friendly, and they gave me the certificate. And you're like holding it, where you're like hand is covering the swastika, and they're like, "Grandpa, Grandpa, what's behind your hand?" And he's like, "Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing." And he just puts it away in his scrapbook. Now we got to go up a little. And he was a POW, and he was released after the war. We're going up farther. So that last one. 3.4 miles. Now we're going up 4.1 miles. Not a huge jump, but it's a huge jump if you're jumping out of a plane. 6.5 kilometers in the air. That's where we're at. And we're in one of the most badass named vehicles ever. It's the Flying Fortress. And when I did the episode about the ghost blimp, I said there's no way dudes would ever pick up chicks in a blimp. If the blimp was called the Flying Fortress, you would. The Flying Fortress, just the visual, it's basically a plane made of guns. It's what a flying fortress is. And a bomber. But anyway, so now we're with Alan McGee. Alan McGee. And we're 4.1 miles up. You know where this is going? They're flying in the flying fortress. And he's the ball gunner. So he's like underneath the plane. And it's straight up like some Star Wars stuff. He's just blowing planes to bits. But you only got to miss one to have a bad day. And what happens is... A Nazi fighter blows off the wing of this flying fortress. So he's in the ball. Now, all the gunfire and everything, of course, tore through his parachute. And he's like, hey, man, when you got to go, you got to go. He just jumped out of the plane. Smashes into the glass ceiling of a railroad. They're over France. Just smashes. That was enough to break his fall. So even though he's fallen 4.1 miles, he hit the glass. It softened the blow. He crashed into the railroad. Not onto the onto the tracks, but into the railroad station. Bunch of broken bones, massive internal injuries, and his right arm was almost severed. And you know, he's probably heard about that other guy who just had like a sprained leg. And he's like, yeah, look at this certificate I got. And Alan's like, why are you covering up that part of the certificate? Anyways, he was also captured by the Nazis and they repaired him, kept him as a POW for a while, and then they released him after the war. So you're like, okay, we got all this stuff. Do we have any on the Eastern Front? Well, we do. And to do that, we're going to have to go up just a little bit higher. Now we're at 4.4 miles. And again, World War II. That's seven kilometers. And we're talking to Ivan Chaisov, bomber navigator during World War II. So we're still in that time zone. Bomber, Russian bomber. It should say by the name. but And we're on the Eastern Front, but it's a Russian bomber. It's just getting lit up again. <laughs> oh no can't get him captain we can't get him and he's like oh i don't know why you're speaking english i don't know why i'm speaking english but keep shooting doesn't matter the russian bomber gets all shot up now he jumps out of his plane and he had a parachute a totally fine working parachute but there was such a huge battle going around he goes i'm just gonna fall i'm gonna fall until i get clear of the battle and then i'm gonna pull my parachute and then I'll be safe. But if I pull my parachute now, the Nazis will just shoot me out of the sky as I'm parachuting down. Now, that's what he was thinking. This is really what was going on in his head. Okay, this is the plan. I'm going to jump out of the plane. I'm going to fall for a while. And then... And he passed out before he could enact his plan. He was falling so far, he passed out. He hit the ground. He hit. Now, the one guy hit... The trees, the girl hit the Amazon, and she had that seat strapped to her, so that helped. The other guy hit the glass ceiling. He hit the side of a snowy ravine going between 120 miles and 150 miles per hour. Massive spinal injuries. He was in critical condition for a month. 
he survived. They they ended up patching him up, and he lived. Now we're on to our number one Guinness World Record highest fall without a parachute. Vesna Volvic. Now, Vesna Volvic, she wasn't a World War II pilot. She wasn't asked to be in, go in a combat zone, and neither did the teenage girl. But Vesna Volvic was a... Uh, what's that word? A uh, stewardess. Vesna Volvic was a stewardess, and this is where in the year 1972. She's in a plane, and she said the day the plane was ready to fly. She actually wasn't supposed to work that day. She got com- They got her confused with another woman named Vesna, which is kind of a cute name. I'd date a girl named Vesna. You can call her Vessi for short, or just V. But anyways, she, got, she wasn't supposed to work that day, and she said even when, she was, even when they were prepping the plane, she goes, everyone was acting kind of weird. Everyone wanted to go out and buy stuff for their family. She said the captain kind of like locked himself in his room. She said the co-pilot, what was odd was he was talking about his kids. And she goes, the tone of his voice was almost like no one else in the world had kids but him. But anyway, so they're in this plane and they're high in the sky. At this point, they are 6.25 miles in the sky. 10 kilometers. And a bomb goes off. And then you can just imagine in slow motion, like you're sitting there. She's standing. Well, actually, she's standing there. She's watching the plane deform in slow motion as this bomb just obliterates everyone and the plane starts to break up. Now, she was towards the tail end of the craft and a beverage cart ran like ran into her and pushed her all the way back as far as it could into the tail of the craft. And so when the plane like the tail side broke off. And started falling and the rest of the plane pretty much literally disintegrated in the air. And she was pushed and pinned down in the tail as it was falling to earth 6.25 miles. Smashed into the ground. Luckily there was a former World War II medic there who saved her life. But she was in a coma for a month. She doesn't remember anything about the event. She has no memory from an hour before the bomb went off to waking up in the hospital room after months of recovery. It's the funniest side note to that story is, so that's Guinness Book of World Records, so that's the longest a human's ever fallen without dying without a parachute. But she ended up becoming a critic of the government. I believe she was Serbian. She started becoming a critic of the government in her later years. And the government, they couldn't throw her in jail because she was this big national hero because she survived this terrorist attack. But their retaliation was, oh, oh no, it wasn't a bomb that blew that plane up. It was the Croatians, but they used the surface-to-air missile, and those only go 7,000 feet up. So, yeah, that plane wasn't that high. There's no, and so, and that was the only, and of course that didn't stick. Her world record stuck around and everything like that. But that's it. Top five people who survived falls. So that went on a little long. But I think today might just be a long episode because we got to get into our next story. Let's go ahead and get on to our main story. Now, I said in the beginning, I go, I've never really been scared of gray aliens. I have a friend named Jackie. She's terrified of them. Every so often, I'll just send her a picture on Facebook of a gray alien. Like, like you're a point of view of an abductee looking up at a gray alien. And she totally flips out. She's always been terrified of them. I know, and that's that's pretty mean. But she does the grudge noise and all that stuff. So she gets back at me. But... I've never been scared of gray aliens. I've never been scared of aliens in general, but specifically like gray aliens, I've always been like, oh, they have no muscle matter. You know, you can just beat them up. You could easily, you could easily take at least three or four of those dudes in a fist fight. No problem. 
But then I read about this, and it kind of, I think the reason why it creeps me out is one, it makes sense. Two, I often say on the show that I don't believe aliens are from space. I believe they're either from Earth or from another dimension. And when you read an article that not only confirms your belief or reaffirms your belief, is probably a better word, but makes. You know, the problem is, is aliens, to me, it's there's this part of this, this kind of this magical thinking, like, oh, they have the ship that can beam stuff up, and they can erase your memory, and they can paralyze you and do all this stuff. You're kind of like, but when you can take those elements and make them realistic, you have to step back and go, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe there is something like that. So... I've always been torn on the idea of aliens because, again, I've never seen one. I've seen ghosts and demons and all sorts of stuff, so I totally believe in those, but I've never seen an alien. So I'm always like, I'll give the person telling me the story the benefit of the doubt. I'll trust what they're saying because I know them, but I've just never seen one myself. So I'm always kind of like, well, you know, they might they might be real. But this story kind of made me go, I'm kind of leaning a little more towards it. And they're a little spooky. So this is the theory. This is on the Conspiracy Iceberg. That great, and it's going to sound funny at first, but this is a really interesting read. Great aliens are actually evolved dolphins. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're evolved and they're from the future, which is kind of what I thought the angle was at first. And I was like, you want me to accept aliens and time travel in the same article? But the the article, and there's a, quite a few articles on this, it's, it really lays it out. So we're going to go back in time to talk about this. Now, science shows that dolphins actually have little fingers in their little flipper things. They have little fingers. And in the fetus, a dolphin fetus and a human fetus look the same. They have little hands, little face. You know, they, they don't, the big snout hasn't shown up. They do, and I looked at and I was like, really? And I looked at the pictures. I'm like, those do look creepily the same. And so there's two schools of thought. One is that dolphins used to be land creatures that moved into the water and evolved to exist in the ocean. They're just like, screw you, land. And they kind of crawled off or walked in, if they were bipedal, and then just over the million... I, you, I, I always think this is kind of ridiculous about evolution. You're telling me that every so often a dog ran to the river and then eventually a baby came out and it was a dolphin. Like, I know it's not that simple, but the idea of a dog going out farther and farther each generation and then finally saying, oh, I don't need this fur. But anyways, for whatever reason, well, I know it's a little more complicated than that. I got a hundred science majors yelling into their phones right now. Anyway, so if you guys aren't yelling every episode, but anyway, so the dolphins used to be land animals. They moved into the water, and that's why they have so many similarities. And they're mammals, and they have little fingers, and they look like little human babies. But then there's another theory. But then there's another theory that dolphins were sea creatures. They evolved to walk on land because they were getting closer and closer to the shore. It's kind of the reverse. And then the species said, ah, screw this, I'm going back under the water. Because they don't necessarily know where it started. Now, that might seem a little more fishy. Get it? A little fishy? But it's a theory that's out there. That dolphins were a sea animal. And then they came to land and then they went back. And it's possible, too, that it was a land animal that went to the water and then came back onto the land and then went back onto the water. We don't know. I mean, we just can look at the similarities and the little fingers and stuff like that. And stuff that makes us think this might have been a land animal at some point. But the theory is this. What if there was a split in the species where there was a dolphin-like creature and at one point 
let's take the original scenario first. Let's actually, we can do both of them. A wolf, a canine, some sort of land creature evolves into be a dolphin. And then eventually the species splits where some of them stay in the ocean, but others do evolve to come back onto land. Those would be the gray aliens. So we're not talking about time travel or anything like that. We're talking about a separate species that lived among the normal species on the planet Earth, but had a different evolutionary pattern. So they would have been here as well for millions of years. Let's go over what a gray alien looks like real quick. Gray aliens are generally seen to be about 5 feet 5 inches. They're humanoid. Two arms, two legs. They have the big skull, the big black eyes, tiny little mouth. They tend to be gray and it's a non-porous skin. It's a very kind of a dolphin-like skin. You know, but it has like the large head, kind of the curved skull. The back of the skull is rounded at the top. And the eyes are kind of slanted towards the back. So... This is what they share in common with modern-day dolphins. Same sk- According to people who have reportedly seen them and interacted with them. Same skin, color, and touch. It has a very slick touch. They don't have pores like we do. Both have the large rounded front of the skull and the bump on the back of the skull. And you're like, well, that's weird. I see dolphins and they're kind of smooth, but... The research, the conspiracy is talking about the if you took the skull of a dolphin, please don't do that, but if you took the skull of a dolphin, it would have that same basic shape. Now, the thing with the eyes, the big black eyes, that's something we generally see in creatures who live in a reduced light environment, which is what the ocean would be considered. You have those black eyes. And people have reported seeing what they thought was some sort of protective covering over the eyeballs, which is also something that sea creatures have. And something that dolphins have. But here's the creepiest part. This is super... This is when I kind of was like, oh, this is getting creepy. Because I could take any tooth animals and go, well, a dog has four legs and a camel has four legs. Like, And especially one that hasn't been proven by science, you can work with the stuff. But this was, I think, one of the creepiest parts. Because, again, it fits into UFO lore. And it makes sense. There's no magic involved to do this. Dolphins can release an ultrasonic blast, basically. And we've known that they can do this. It's an ultrasound where they will be swimming and they'll see a fish and they'll go, and we won't hear it because it's it's an ultrasound. But the fish, one of three things will happen. It will get disoriented and it'll start swimming around in circles and the dolphin will eat it. It will straight up get stunned and sit there and the dolphin will eat it. Or it just liquefies their organs and they die. It's a hunting technique that the dolphins have learned. It's a skill that they have in particular where they can direct this ultrasound towards a living creature and it will disorient them. At the very least, you won't be able to control or think. You won't be able to think about what's going on. At the very most, it'll kill you, but it can also just stun you. And the theory is this. In reports of gray aliens abducting people, You have the person waking up in the middle of the night. Lights are all off. There's a figure at the foot of their bed. And they can't move. Let me read you this quote here. They're talking about this ultrasound with the gray aliens. The result was physical paralysis and disorientation. I believe that this is the very same technique used by the grays in abductions. The similarities are overwhelming. 
Every abductee says that when they are abducted, they are paralyzed and become mentally disoriented. This is usually in the presence of a gray. The most striking thing they recall is what is called the stare. This is when the gray looks directly at an abductee. The large, dark eyes capture the abductee's attention immediately. They then report being unable to move and a feeling of great mental disorientation. On some rare occasions, abductees report a lessening of these effects when the gray looked away from them. This indicates that the intensity of the effect was directly proportional to the direction or focus of the front portion of the gray's head. When the alien turns its head, it feels like you're, you have a little bit more control over your body. And dolphins have to be looking at the fish to direct that ultrasound attack. If it moves its head, the fish can reorient itself or start moving again because it's a directed beam. So is it possible that that's why you can't move when a gray alien shows up? Because they're looking right at you and you can never hear it, but they're directing that same ultrasound attack beam and you're just completely frozen. And when they turn to look at another gray... You can kind of start getting reoriented. You can kind of start feeling your fingers move and your toes wiggle, and then it turns back to you and you're frozen again. So it's looking down at you. That's creepy, personally. That's really, really creepy. Is that what's causing people when they wake up? It's not sleep paralysis. The reason why they can't move is because the gray alien is directing this ultrasound attack. Could it be so advanced, not technologically, but just skill-wise, that that's what can cause for disorientation leading to things like missing time or forgetting the event and having just simple flashbacks about it? Let's deal real quickly, and the, the, the conspiracy theory doesn't go so far into this, but I know your questions are, what about the spaceships? Where do they live? Here's the thing. If they're evolved to live in low-light environments, Earth has these massive tunnel systems that have never been fully explored and will never fully be explored. So if they can't still live underwater, they don't have blowholes, you know, they have regular old faces. They've evolved to live on land. They could be in any cave system in the world. And when we look at Native American legends, legends from around the world, we find stories of cursed caves, of gods coming out of caves and things like that. What about the UFOs? The technology needed to build a UFO, we don't know about. And that's where we start to get into the science fiction magic part of the theory again. Flying ships that don't require jet fuel, that can hover, that can beam people aboard. These are all things we don't know about. But my argument always was about aliens coming from another planet. Is that to build a box and to move in that box from location A to location B, I believe is an Earth concept. We do it. Ants do it. The idea of looking at a river and going, I need to cross that. That must mean I need a vehicle. That's an earth concept. I don't think that, I think that is a way. The reason why I say it's an earth concept is because I think, let's say you lived on a planet that had absolutely no rivers. It all had wells, underground water supply. You wouldn't know what a boat was. You would never need one. But our planet has rivers and lakes and oceans and streams and all of this stuff. So even an ant looks at a stream and goes, I need to get to the other side of that. That must mean I need a boat. And they'll take, they're not actually building a boat, but you know, they'll take leaves and they'll float across. And I think if a, if a million species evolved on a planet with all the water was underground, 
and he would just kind of spring up and just blah, 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 take a little lip, you know, take a little slurp. You wouldn't, you would never, if someone, if they saw a boat, they'd be like, what's that? What's the point of putting stuff on that? I mean, just walk over there. So on and so forth. The same thing if you, if everything was ocean and there was no land, you wouldn't have need boats anyways. Everything would be evolved swim. So this idea of building a transport vehicle to go from one location to another, I think is a, is a earth design because we need those to exist on our planets. A gas giant? They wouldn't need those. They're just like, and they'd hold their breath and they'd float to float around. They want to think, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to mine stuff and then build rockets. A planet with no warfare would never have rocket technology. All, all of this stuff. We look at all these variables that are needed to build a starship. And you need a particular type of society to do it. You need a society that is communal and curious. One without the other, they would never build a spaceship. They could be super utopian. But if they're not a curious species, they're never going to go, what's out there? And you could have a curious species, but they're super barbaric. That's always bugged me about Klingons. Who Who's the engineer in the Klingons? He's building those ships. They're all a bunch of warriors. The same thing with the Predators. Who works on the Predator planet and they like design ships and all the other Predators make fun of them because they don't have alien skulls on their wall. But building vessels and flying around and going underwater and that's very earthly and so if the greys did evolve alongside of us in cave systems they would go well we need some sort of transport the ufos that we see may not be what we think it may not be the level of technology we think it may be and they have simply over the years not burned every library during every single war they could have been more cunning and more thoughtful and evolved along a path where they were Focusing on inventing things. It could be. I mean, who knows? Who knows? I would say that the UFOs that we see aren't as advanced as we think they are. That's my personal theory. That they're not this super advanced craft. It's just something we don't we don't know because we haven't needed to know. So let's wrap this up in a bow. Gray aliens or are a breakaway of dolphins. And they've not lived among us, but they've lived alongside of us for as long as we've been around. Deep in the cave systems, right now, not traveling from some far across galaxy, but right now, there could be... Could you imagine... You know, that's the thing. People talk about the panic that would set in if the government released documents saying that aliens were real. And people go, no, they wouldn't. Imagine if the government released documents saying that aliens are real, but they're actually on Earth. We can't find them, and they've been here for 10 million years. That would be far more disturbing than coming from outer space. Because then you'd go, what do we do? Do we blow up our own planet? It's not like they're an invading force. They're here. And there's millions of them. They're in the caves. What are we going to do? Gas every single cave on the planet and get a bunch of UFOs attacking us? I think that would be more disturbing because that would really make you rethink every single point of human history and go, maybe aliens did do that. Maybe Jesus was an alien. Maybe religion is fake, blah, blah, blah. Religion has configured itself to say, yeah, there's probably life out there. But religion, I don't think, could deal with the idea that there is life here that is smarter than we are. We are no longer masters of our own planet. It's one thing to have a rat infestation in your house. And it's another thing to move in a house that the rats already own. One, you are defending your own home. And in the other, you're on their turf. And you're playing by their rules. That, I think, 
is far creepier than any gray alien story I've heard. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.